KRCL, Salt Lake City. Koi Studio is an in-house, sustainable cut-and-sew studio at Clever Octopus that utilizes reclaimed textiles to create one-of-a-kind tote bags, fanny packs, dop kits, dog bandanas, dog toys, and more. Always available at Clever Octopus, 2250 Southwest Temple in Salt Lake, and online at cleveroctopus.org slash coi studio. Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. I'm Laura Jones. Thanks for plugging into your community with me tonight and every night, weeknights at 6 here, during Radioactive, only on KRCL. Stick around. Tonight, rising journalists of Salt Lake Community College will be joining me along with their professor, Marcy Cancio. They're going to be taking over Thursday nights in about two weeks, and I thought we should get to know them first, find out what they're interested in, and how maybe you can share your story with them in a future show. Plus, Downwind, a must-see documentary at Slamdance about nuclear fallout in the U.S., especially here in Utah. You know, the movie starring John Wayne, The Conqueror, lots of problems with this movie made in the 50s, starting with the fact that John Wayne was playing Genghis Khan. But all those tests were going on. They knew nothing about it. They had a lot of uh, fight scenes, lots of horses racing around the desert and kicking up the dust. And there is a huge number of folks who worked on that film who later passed away from cancer, and they do believe it's because of nuclear testing and the fallout in the desert of Utah. Stick around, we're gonna talk about that and tell you how you can see this new movie. It's Slam Dance, which is also going on this month. First, a rallies and resources. If you go to krcl.org, click on Community Affairs, you'll find the rallies and resources tab with items such as this. The Weber River Confluence Conference was wrapping up today, as was Outdoor Retailer. Stick around, we're going to get there with some climbing in a bit. Today is also the day that Sundance single tickets have gone on sale. i got a link for you in Rallies and Resources. Tomorrow is the last day to submit public comment on UDOT's proposed expansion of I-15 from Farmington to Salt Lake City. Check out Rallies and Resources for a link to the environmental impact statement, as well as different ways for you to pull apart the data that's there so far and then give them your two cents maybe a couple of times i know nick burns has done it at least twice on saturday it is the benyon center's mlk junior day of service from 9 a.m to noon it's the kickoff event to the university of utah's martin luther king week lots of volunteer opportunities in support of local community organizations to honor reverend dr martin luther king his dedication and commitment to justice service and equity a lot of folks making this weekend about service in memory of Dr. King. Also on Saturday at noon at the Utah State Capitol, it is a rally to save our Great Salt Lake. We talked about it last night. Several groups putting this together. Last I checked, Great Salt Lake Audubon, Heal Utah, Utah Rivers Council, Plant-Based Utah, Stop the Polluting Port, Save Our Great Salt Lake, Utah Physicians for a Healthy Environment, Salt Lake City Air Protectors, and the Save Our Great Salt Lake organization. We're going to have lots of speakers, and they encourage you to bring your own sign, but they'll have some too if, if you'd like to wave one during the rally at noon. Again, more details online at krcl.org. Tuesday, January 17th, Choosing Love Over Hate, a conversation with Reverend Franz Davis, formerly of Calvary Baptist. It's at 11 a.m. in the Gold Auditorium at the J. Willard Marriott Library. 
That's up at the University of Utah. A Q&A and roundtable discussion with the Reverend to learn about his experiences and discuss, quote, choosing love over hate, unquote, in navigating today's challenges. Details again at Rallies and Resources, and that's at krcl.org under the Community Affairs tab. Got some special guests to help us with Rallies and Resources, and two of them in studio with me right now. We have Pro Climber, now living here, Alex Johnson. How are you? Welcome. I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And your home gym is this new facility over at Evo Hotel on Salt Lake's west side. It is. It's called the Salt Lake Bouldering Project. Um, It's brand new. It is the seventh gym in the greater Salt Lake area, which is really, really cool. But um, yeah, my one of my personal favorites and the gym I frequent the most. There you go. And Lauren McGuire is here from Evo to tell us all about it. There's a skate park there, too, that works with kids uh, to get them in and being active, but also learning how to do that safely. Right, Lauren? Yes, yes. And thank you for having me. Yeah, they, we have our uh, skate park, our store, Evo store, L9, and um, as Alex mentioned, the bouldering project as well as the Evo Hotel. It's the weirdest hotel, folks, because all the rooms are internal. You know, I guess they expect folks to be out hitting the slopes or climbing, things like that, Lauren. Yeah, one of our, like, logos, you know, is from bed to shred. Is The idea was that people are coming here to take advantage of the great outdoors yeah. and just a place to rejuvenate. Well, Alex, I, I'm curious about climbers. And when I first went over and checked out Evo, they said there's a lot of women climbers who call this gym home. And so I was curious about that. Is Utah a hotbed for climbing in general, but women specifically? Tons. Um, Utah is a mecca for climbing both inside and outside. Um, it has some of the best outdoor climbing in the world and definitely some of the best indoor gyms in the world. And many of the athletes on the U.S. team live here. And so most of the U.S. women's team lives here, um, trains here, climbs together. And then several athletes from around the world actually come train and live here too. So we have like Canadian national champion Allison Vest and like European women, everyone sort of comes, um, Japanese climbers, like everyone's here. This is sort of like the training and climbing center of the United States. Well, the snow show outdoor retailer just wrapped today. I don't know if you had a chance to check any of that action out, but, um, what do you do in the off season? So we are currently in the off season for competitions for climbing and mostly we get to sort of like relax, reset the training program and also climb outside. So the competition cycle is basically from like spring to fall. And so from fall to winter is sort of when we get to go climbing outside, um, relax a little bit, like enjoy nature and then reset the block. All right. I'm really interested in how you got into climbing because you were telling me you started when you were eight and you won your first U S open national championship at 13 in 2003. So what's the origin story for you? So uh, my mom would tell the story as she needed an outlet for me. <laughs> um, it was basically like I was climbing out of my crib. And so it was it's like escaping and um, climbing trees, playground sets. Instead of swinging on swings, I was like climbing up them. And um, churches, oddly enough, have really nice landscape for like, there's yeah. like, they're made out of <laughs> cobblestones and stuff. And so um, my baptism, I was like on the roof of the church. And my mom heard these footsteps. It was like, dur, 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 dur. and she was like, oh, no. <laughs> I'm like up there in a dress. A spirit she, moved you. Yeah. She was like, okay, we need a climbing gym. And so it, that's she took me there once, and it ended up being like a camp, and then club once a week, and then team two or three times a week, and then I was going every day. Wow. So this is the late 90s or so, right? Yes. What was climbing like for young women at the time? It was a, a basically non-existent. Um I often say that I grew up climbing with older guys and it's sort of 
how I like acquired my climbing style. And so generally women aren't usually as powerful as guys. And so we use more technique and finesse and like momentum to get up things. And growing up climbing predominantly with guys, I like learned how to be more powerful at a really young age, which I think has been really beneficial for me. And and it was like really cool sort of seeing that growth. Like I was the only girl. I was super young. There was a rule in my gym that you had to be 13 to go to like the adult only area. And I would like sneak in there all the time. And (laughs) it was just all these older guys. And I was like throwing down with them. It was really cool. I remember growing up, it was uh, girls don't have upper body strength, but you have balance. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bust some myths for us honestly super accurate um but we for sure have upper body strength the balance is like i think that girls excel in balance compared to guys i think maybe it's like a lower center of gravity thing yeah um but the upper body strength is totally a myth a myth there are tons of female climbers out there who are like could put the guys to shame for sure yeah what was the (laughs) hardest thing to learn how to do it sounds like you had a a lot of natural talent Mm -hmm. and no fear obviously I think the hardest thing for me to learn to do was to be disciplined and a lot of that talent sort of like I rode that for as long as I could. And then as climbing grew and more women and and people joined, they started working harder than I did. And that was sort of like a really interesting wake up call and that I needed to also be disciplined and work hard. And they caught up to you. Totally. (laughs) You're like, okay, I got to figure this out. So Mm -hmm. how did you put the discipline and persistence into play? Um set an alarm write a training program like (laughs) spend a dedicated amount of time in the gym like I used to only really climb to train yeah and I started doing a lot of off-wall exercises which at the time in like 2010 to 13 area was like not super common like lifting weights like the strength to weight ratio aspect in climbing is is like a fine balance and so a lot of times people shy away from like lifting weights or doing anything off-wall because you don't really want to be that much heavier Mm. and so I started applying those things to climbing in a way that was like smart and did a bunch of interviews with trainers and sort of figured out what the perfect plan was and all of that led to like one of the best seasons of my life which was really cool and then I bought into it you know yeah (laughs) yeah. Uh, tell me about um free climbing and and things like that getting over that that fear that that leap trusting what your brain and your body can do uh, honestly a lot of professional climbers will tell you that that fear doesn't always go away. Um, a lot of it is sort of learning to like manage it or control it. And, and a lot of the times if you're scared, it's a good thing because climbing is so inherently dangerous. Like that fear is what keeps us safe. And I think like I'll go lead climbing outside or sport climbing outside. And that's like with a rope, but I'm, I'm never not afraid. Like I know that I trust my gear. I trust myself, but it's still like, it's a scary thing. Like climbing is scary. And a lot of that fear is is not unwise to have. Yeah. I was checking out your, your socials and I saw a picture of you with a, a young young girl climber and I'm just kind of curious what those conversations are like. Those are some of my favorite conversations. Um, I coach a lot in my free time and I think I had a lot of people who were really important mentors in my life and I think for me to have like gone through all of what I've gone through and gained all of this like knowledge that I have it, I think it would be a waste not to try to give as much of it back as I can. And that's something that I find really enjoyable, especially with younger girls when they come and they're like struggling with something and we sort of like figure out a way that they can approach it in a way that suits their style or suits their age or suits their size and then watch them excel on it and like watch them light up. And it's like one of the coolest feelings ever. Talking with pro climber Alex A.J. Johnson, who now calls Salt Lake City home. Do you have a, a favorite climb here locally 
Ooh, favorite climb. Um, that you dare share. Oh man, oh, I got oh, there are so many. Little Cottonwood is amazing. It's I think one of the, one of the best climbing destinations in the country. Favorite climb. There's this really really tall V8, which is a difficulty rating. Um, if you hike down on the I don't know whatever trail it is might be the Bonneville, Bonneville Shoreline <laughs> Trail. I don't even know. And it's like right, right by the wood bridge. Mm-hmm. Super tall, like 25 feet. Um, I did that without a rope. And that wow. was like, that's probably the coolest thing I've done. Just hearing you talk about it without a rope. That's mm-hmm. all I had to say. And I'm, I'm a little... I'm a little frightened. I remember going up to Snowbird years ago and watching people climb the face of, of some of the buildings there in the Whoa. competitions. Yeah. Oh, I don't know if they yeah, still totally. do it. Totally. They don't, but that yeah. was a really famous... <laughs> I totally remember yeah. that. And, and stuff like that. So where do you think climbing climbing is, is headed? Um, it's been said for years that climbing would follow the same trajectory as skateboarding and snowboarding because we're sort of like the, the outcast sport those the the tr- unholy triumvirate yeah. about as sports yeah like the outdoor like misfits yeah uh, and it's sort of like something that i revel in but i think uh-huh. that climbing in the last decade has grown exponentially the last five years and even the last year has exploded especially with climbing being added to the olympics 2020 slash one was the first year that climbing was in the olympics and we also have been invited back for 2024 and I'm pretty sure solidified 2028. And so I think with just the exposure of the sport in that sort of venue, everything will grow. And the, the great thing about it, and especially why the bouldering project is so cool, is bouldering is so accessible. There's no gear needed. You don't need a partner. There's no rope. You can walk walk in and rent a pair of shoes and just go try whatever you... It's like going for a run. Yeah. It, they make it so easy. Well, you were NBC's Olympic climbing analyst, right? Or joined on that team for the 2021-22 competition season. Any chance you might want to get back into your Olympic aspirations for 24, 28? Can you even do that? I could. Um, I, when I tried to qualify in 2019, was pretty close and not quite, didn't quite make it. We sent um, a full team, so two men and two women, which was amazing because not every country got to send a full team. And I think I was probably among the U.S. athletes ranked fourth or fifth. So I was like close. I dabbled. Um, stepped away f- from competing for a year or two. Started commentating and then commentated um, the U.S. Nationals and the U.S. Team Trials, which was fun. And sort of doing that and being there made me miss competing again. And so this past November, I unretired again for like the sixth time <laughs> and competed at the national championships, made finals, and then team trials are in March. And so if I like do well enough there, there's a chance yeah, there's a chance. There's a chance. <laughs> All right. Well, how can people follow you? Uh, my Instagram is at AlexJohnson89. That's really the only thing I'm active on. So <laughs> I guess that's the only There it is. <laughs> well, thanks for coming in and, and welcome to Utah. I don't know how long you've been here, but please come back anytime you want to talk climbing or you want to talk about anything. Totally. Thank Sound you great? very much. Consider the microphone is yours. All right. <laughs> Thank you. And Lauren, where can folks learn more about Evo Hotel and the climbing gym there and the skate park? Yeah, so um, for the Evo Hotel, uh, if you go to Evo Hotel Salt Lake, that's our Instagram. Uh, Same thing for Facebook. And then, um, you know, we have plenty of posts that are linking ATS Skate Park that's in Salt Lake. So, um, and then Bouldering Project, same thing, Bouldering Project Lake. You can find us all there. What's the address of Evo Hotel? It is 600 South 400, or 600 South 440 West. There you go. 40 West. Mm-hmm. 
I think it's actually 600 Six, West 40. Yes, south. thank you. Yes, you got it. <laughs> south of south of fifth south sixth south. Yeah. Okay. Yes. All right. We're gonna double check the address before the show is over, folks. But you can check the show notes tonight as well and check out the bouldering opportunities and, and skate park. Um, and of course, the unholy triumvirate of what did you say? Snowboarding, skate, roller, uh, skateboarding, and climbing. Snowboarding, climbing. Yep. Okay. <laughs> well, they got a home here at KRCL. Okay. <laughs> Stick around. Salt Lake Community College up next. The Urban Indian Center of Salt Lake is a cultural nonprofit that provides services in health, wellness, behavioral health, and family and youth service programs. More details about this Center for American Indians and Alaska Natives in Utah residing on the Wasatch Front may be found online at UICSL.org. KRCL is hiring a production assistant to join our staff part-time and support the radioactive program. Details are on our website, krcl.org. KRCL is an equal opportunity employer. You're listening to Radioactive on KRCL. I'm Laura Jones, and we're getting our rising journalists in here on the show with uh, their professor, Marcy Young Cancio. We are live, folks, so come on in and sit down. Joining us now on mic, we have uh, Kyle Forbush, who's in the new class that's going to take over the show. We also have Macaulay Blackburn, who you may recognize from some great Salt Lake collaborative uh, conversations that we've had. Hi, how you doing? Good, how are you tonight? Well, Navigating live radio. Here we go. Marcy Uncancio, professor at Salt Lake Community College, is sitting down in the studio with us. How you doing? I'm doing great. Oh, hold on. You know what? I got to remember to turn your mic. So much for you know. <laughs> here saying, we go. Get in here. Live radio in action. I'm doing great. Thanks for having us. And Amplify Utah. Will you remind folks what that is all about? Yeah, Amplify Utah is a nonprofit that was launched a couple of years ago. That's focused on increasing representative storytelling through local journalism, particularly through student journalists like these folks at Salt Lake Community College. We actually have quite a few more students in the other room because we're doing a tour and they're getting ready to start. right now, yeah. waving at us through yeah. the window in the Just studio. Just imagine that they're Sending all their us. love through the radio waves <laughs> right now. <laughs> so a year ago, you and I said, let's try this. Let's see what happens. Um, get rising journalists some experience doing community affairs show, bringing stories that they feel are not on the air to the air as well as uh, seeing what they might do given their varied backgrounds. Right, right. And so these students are writing stories as part of their journalism coursework at the college. The stories that have these touch points of what we like to call representative storytelling are then shared with local media partners like the Salt Lake Tribune um, and others and then are published within their on their websites and in their organizations. We're now taking those stories and then last year brought them to radioactive and are again doing this and so you can see these stories very ideas to amplify them as broadly as possible and what a better place for amplification than a radio station and a program like radioactive okay so i want to know a bit more about the two of you as representative also of your fellow student journalists so macaulay give us your background what's your origin story um, well, I don't really know about an origin story, but I started at Slick um, quite a while ago. It's been <laughs> it's been an experience. I started with social work. It was fun. It was good. It taught me what I needed to know. But I've always wanted to be a writer, um, regardless of whatever you know, way I, whichever path I went down. And um, something that's really important to me is the environment and the climate crisis. And I kind of was like, I don't have time to, you know, do all this schoolwork. I need to get out there and write and use my voice and 
then I took one class with Marcy and she's really helped me out with, you know, a lot of opportunities and yeah, so I guess that's my uh, origin story with journalism. Okay, well, I, I want to go a bit deeper on why the environment is um, got a hold of you and why you yeah. feel such an urgency. Uh, so speaking for your peer group, put mm-hmm. on the big peer group hat. Okay. <laughs> Tell us how the environment is impacting you and why you feel this is such a story that needs to be told. Well, the truth is that if we don't address the climate crisis, um, very urgently like we need to act now if we don't act now or as soon as we possibly can then i think that will lead to you know my death and the death of a lot of people i care about and ecosystems that i care about and i don't want to see that i think that humans right now have a really good opportunity to show up for each other and for our environment and the ecosystem in general which includes everything and if we do that maybe we can make a difference enough so we can go we can go down this path as little as possible and maybe make things better all right so i i i'm, I'm i want to understand the almost panic that i feel yeah. your peers feel and why you think maybe we're not getting it older folks um well, okay, so I have been stressed about the trees since I was 12 years old, and I'm not joking. I watched a documentary when I was 12 on deforestation in the Amazon, and I, you know, it was just obviously so horrific to kill these trees, to take away these, um, the, these, this place where these animals, these people live, and um, so I think for me, for my generation, we've grown up hearing like, this is urgent. This is right now. This is happening. And it's not going to get better unless we make some changes. So yeah, that's, I think, how my generation might see it. And I feel like there's also some anger, of course, too, because it's like we are pretty young. You know, I'm only 26. And I worry about how long my life is going to be because of the climate crisis. Like it's something that genuinely worries me. And uh, if we, you know, we are inheriting this. And it wasn't really our fault. But you're not, I you're not happy up. about the legacy that we've left you. I apologize. Not really. But, you know, I, again, think this is a chance for humans to show up for each other, for our environment, and do better. Okay. I love that. So I'm expecting some stories along those lines. Is that yes. what you're thinking? Oh, yeah. I've got some stuff coming up about the lake that I'm excited about that I'm yeah. already, like, putting in my little brain. Speaking of which, you had an internship with the Great Salt Lake Collaborative, of yes. which KRCL is a part, and Amplify Utah and the Community College. What did you get to do? Um, I answered questions to a survey that the Great Salt Lake Collaborative put out. I answered them this summer, and then I've I've done a few since then. Um, and it's been it's been a really good experience to learn how to do some journalistic writing. It's been really cool, but also very hard to deal with. You know, I wrote about um, the collapse of the ecosystem being a possibility with the 17% salinity in Bonnie Baxter's labs. Bonnie um, Baxter at Westminster College. Yes, at the Great Salt Lake University Institute. University now, the Great Salt Lake Institute. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, so she said at 17%, there's mass die-offs of the cyanobacteria, which are like the food base for the food chains out there. And I was really worried about that. Mm-hmm. And then I, I was waiting for it to happen. And then Bonnie told me it's, it's 18% salinity open water. So I knew that that's too high for the cyanobacteria. And then we had um, the Great Salt Lake Collaborative had a story, I believe, by Leah Larson about the ecosystem collapse come out on the Salt Lake Tribune. And I was just really, I mean, it it just felt like I had been waiting for months for this to happen. And it happened. And I was really devastated. So it's been a kind of hard experience. But 
an experience I would like to dedicate my time to, of course. Well, wonderful. You're going to be on a team, and one of your teammates may or may not be. Uh, Kyle Forbush in the studio with us. How are you doing, Kyle? I'm doing great. How are you? Give us your origin story. How do you come to this class, to the community college? 1994 in the city of Chicago. I'm just, I'm not going to go back that far. Um, so, yeah, I completed a few credits. I did grow up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, so I went to a community college there, and then I went to one in Chicago and took them very slowly. And yeah. I've been full-time at Salt Lake Community College, and it's been the best experience I could have asked for. I mean, this is the icing on the cake, being live on air. Hi, everybody. Salt Lake Valley. <laughs> um, and when you so, moved yeah. here, you found us left of the dial, right? Yeah. So uh, I have a bad habit of trying to curate just about every minute of my drives. Uh-huh. And usually that's with my phone connected, which can be a little precarious, to say the least, if you're driving. Uh, if you don't have the correct cue adequately, you know, queued up. So, you know, one day my Apple CarPlay just booted out just stopped working and so I was searching the dials it was my first year here I moved here two and a half years ago and I hadn't really explored the radio yet so I was scrolling past classic rock scrolling past more jukebox juke, uh, jukebox rock and then I got to some classical which Tchaikovsky that's about all I know yeah. and so I landed on I think if I remember correctly it was like an Irish jig which like <laughs> I and fiddle show must have been a Sunday okay yeah that makes sense because um, I love Irish music. My mm -hmm. favorite is Whiskey in the Jar by the Dubliners. There and you go. Yeah, so that was hook, line, and sinker for me. And now anytime my Apple CarPlay decides not to work, I know where to go. So so what kind of stories do you want to cover? What are you interested in bringing to the airwaves through this class? I'm going for an Associates in Communications. I want to help uh, the messaging of lesser-known voices. Mm -hmm. One thing I love about radio is that the airwaves aren't going anywhere. And... You know, independent radio stations, I want to give a shout out to 88.9 Radio Milwaukee, that uh, they showed me the beauty uh, and the miracle of independent radio and how it can really give voices to the marginalized and unheard. So I really appreciate that, and I appreciate what you guys do. Um, I want to help, basically in my career path, is work for a nonprofit where I can either help animals get adopted mm -hmm. or work with the environment because okay. I think you asked uh, my classmate um, what you know what we your <laughs> sorry your generation could have done differently yeah. uh -huh. no offense meant um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think there's too much concern with the bottom line when the bottom line is we have one planet and I, I think uh, people just need to be made aware of that more often um, so both of those things animal rescue and the environment are right up my alley so you mentioned pets do you have pets I have two rescue animals a feline named Mila who is five and a half and a, a canine named Whiskey who is a mutt he's from Nuzzles and Company shout out Nuzzles and Company in Park City that place is amazing mm -hmm. anyone looking for rescue animals they do a great job um, they do everything for them, all the medical stuff that they need. Whiskey was actually anemic when we first adopted him. He had, was born in New Mexico on the Navajo Reservation, and he had, you know, no nutrients in his blood. Oh. So they gave him a full blood transfusion at two and a half months old. So he doesn't really like going to the vet, but he is as big as a sweetheart as you could have ever asked for. He's enormous. He's 65 pounds, but he is a big baby. Yeah. And he's so he's part husky and a few other breeds, just a blender of breeds. And um, I couldn't be happier to have known him. And I want to keep helping animals like him because I don't know where he'd be without Nuzzles and Company and without, yeah. you know, the potential for adoption. So, 
Well, the reason I wanted to talk to you so in depth and personally is because journalism has changed so much since I started, Marcy, since you started, right? And there's so much more of the reporter out there. What do you think about that? Do you have that hands-off, I'm a neutral observer approach? Or what approach might you want to take, Kyle? So I'm going to go... I'm hoping to go into digital marketing and messaging for uh, organizations that try to promote things like climate justice or animal rescue. So in that case, I would be more subjective because I'd be promoting a message or a brand, you Mm -hmm. know, trying to get something done, but you got to convince people it needs to get done also. And that you care as well. Yeah. Well, Macaulay, the Great Salt Lake Collaborative is a solutions journalism initiative. It's not about... um, opinion, although there's lots of opinion that we get into as so much as here's a problem, here's some solutions. Yeah. Um, what, what would you like me to <laughs> do? You, do you agree with that approach or what kind of approach do you want to take on the show? Oh, man. Okay. So, well, actually, I kind of do have a story with this. Uh, Somebody in the Great Salt Lake Collaborative who is an amazing journalist. She's given me, you know, some great tips. She's a great she was a great mentor for me. But she was like, do you want to be a journalist or an activist? And I was like, uh, both. <laughs> like, I, did, I don't want to separate myself from issues and causes that I care about. And I want to live in um, with my values that I have. And so that was kind of like a moment for me where I was like, if I have to be completely objective to be a journalist, then I don't mm-hmm. think I can be a journalist. And I don't think that's the path for me. So do you take that then as license to follow the stories you're interested in? Um, yes, in a way. I, so I wasn't sure. I was like, okay, maybe journalism is a no-go and I'm wrong about this. And I talked to Marcy actually, and she was like, that's, you know, like there is room for you to do what you want to do, um, and still have like who you are in it. Reporters specialize all the time. And it's about getting to the truth, Marcy. Right. And we talk about in my classes at the college, we talk about kind of the evolution of journalism. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is such a a need. It is necessary for journalism to kind of follow always the standards of accuracy and of balance as necessary. But our digital world has opened it up so much that if a story is worth telling, I think we need to find the ways and the channels to be able to do that, despite the fact that maybe there's more, and this is where you see more advocacy journalism, right? Mm -hmm. But just making that clear what it is and what it isn't, um, because it would be a real tragedy for a story not to be told because it doesn't abide by these very strict parameters of what maybe legacy journalism was. Mm-hmm. But it's just making, I think it's making it clear what's opinion, what's advocacy work, what you can trust as kind of traditional and legacy journalism. And I think that they're all important and there's room for mm-hmm. all of it. Storytelling has become all encompassing. Everything has got to be a story. Everything's got to have this uh, narrative going on. And I think that can be a, a struggle for the public that just wants facts. Just wants facts. So what is your guidance to this new crop of rising journalists in terms of of doing the show? Because we have the time and the luxury to pass the microphone and help people tell their stories for themselves. Yeah, I think it's it's knowing the difference. I mean, I teach traditional print journalism where, you know, you have to know the foundational stuff before you can start to break the rules up, right? You have to know how not to get sued. You have to understand <laughs> FOIA. You have to understand what the inverted pyramid was, what the best approach is, mm-hmm. you know, like standards for interviewing and ethics. That's all crucial. Like the mechanics of journalism, yeah. good grammar, like attribution, that is all key. Once you have a good foundational piece, then I think that you come in and you you 
observe, like you pay attention to your audience and you tell stories in a dynamic community connected way when you sit down in this studio at KRCL as part of Radioactive. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, like if there's not a human element into a story, then yeah. why do we care? That's why we it care will be the robots just spitting out the facts yeah. to us with the, you know. It's how it affects us and it's how it affects our friends, our family, our loved ones, our, our, our cats and dogs, right? Yeah. Like those are the stories that compel us to action mm-hmm. and compel us to care yeah. about the world. Uh, Amplify Utah as a media literacy nonprofit, what are your concerns for the general public and the way media is made and consumed, especially, you know, I was just doom scrolling shortly before you guys sure. got here and looking at yeah. what's going on with Biden and classified documents. And I'm getting my news, breaking news from Twitter, which is a hot take from somebody who's not really covering the story. Right. And Twitter is, you know, a whole different bag of chips know, in right? this particular moment not in time. Not very tasty. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's. Uh, what was the question? Sorry, I got distracted. So, what is Twitter. your what is it about media literacy and literacy in the sure. public? Yeah. I, I'm okay. notorious well, for that. Well, Utah is a media literacy and engagement project, not in a traditional form of media literacy, but in understanding that if you don't hear the many stories from around us, we can't be media literate about our the media that we're receiving if we're only hearing a fraction of the stories. And that's part of growing out and bolstering representative journalism. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to media literacy, I mean, we're so in our channels, so in our bubbles of reinforcing ideas. And I encourage my students and everyone I engage with to challenge yourself to go to sources beyond you, even to sources that you might automatically say, you know, that's not what I agree with. It's not, but you need to know what's happening in the world to kind of have an understanding of how the other half is gathering their information. Yeah. You know, it's, Hmm. and it can be enraging sometimes, but to not really (laughs) fully understand what the full landscape of the media is, I think makes it challenging to have an honest relationship with the way you consume your own media. Just a couple minutes left here in our conversation with Professor Marcy Young-Cancio from Salt Lake Community College in Amplify, Utah, leading up a a course that will have students, rising journalists at the college, take over this show every Thursday night. And when are we starting? Two weeks from tonight? January 26th will be our first show. We have 11 students. You know, Kyle and Macaulay are in the studio right now, but the nine others are just on the other side of this class, smiling and waving to you enthusiastically. Uh, and these are students who have all been through the journalism writing class or were in the media and society class, yeah. talking about the, a lot of those media literacy things. Final opportunity, Kyle, what would and, you like to share? Well, that class, the, the second one you just mentioned, I personally think should be as required as rudimentary mathematics and English. Because every everything is packaged Mm -hmm. these days in Mm -hmm. one way or another. And what Marcy was talking about was, you know, unpacking what is inside sometimes a pretty box that, you know, may be dressed up or maybe dressed down, but either way, it's just seeing through some of the strategies to get to the meat of the issues. Yeah. So if you want to enroll in COM 1500 Media and Society at Salt Lake Community College, (laughs) classes are still open. And we just added a new 12 week course online starting January 30th. So there's spots in there right now. And Macaulay, your last thoughts here? Yeah, um, you know, I really came into this realm a year ago just hoping to use my voice um, to speak against what's wrong and to stand up for what's right. And I hope that I can encourage everybody to do the same thing. It doesn't have to be on the radio. You don't have to use your voice on the radio, but use your voice to talk to your friends, to your family, to your community, and build those connections and do what's right. Let's come together. 
Well, Macaulay, Kyle, Marcy, thank you so much. Looking forward to what we're going to get up to. Some good trouble, hopefully, on Thursday starting January 26th. And, of course, you can send ideas to radioactive at krcl.org. I'm Laura Jones. Coming up next, we're talking about Downwind, Downwind, a new documentary screening at Slamdance this month. And to get us from here to there, the Talking Atomic Blues, Adam Miller on KRCL 90.9. I preach you all a sermon about old man Adam. I don't mean the Adam in the Bible, Adam. Support for Radioactive on KRCL comes from Mark Miller's Subaru and the Subaru Share the Love event a partnership with local charities in delivering hope this holiday season. Learn more and info on how to get involved at markmillersubaru.com. This is KRCL's Sundance in 60, your on-air guide to 2023's in-person and online Sundance Film Festival, happening January 19th through the 29th. Each day throughout the festival, we'll get you up to speed on all things Sundance. Film premieres, artist conversations, Salt Lake screenings, and online offerings where you can have your very own Sundance screening from the comfort of your own homes, surrounded by the people that you choose. A few films on KRCL's radar, the Little Richard documentary, I Am Everything, the Indigo Girls documentary, It's Only Life After All, and Squaring the Circle, about the legendary artistic duo Hypnosis, responsible for some of music's most legendary album covers. Visit krcl.org for more information on the Sundance Film Festival, and be sure to follow us, at KRCL Radio, on Facebook and Instagram for updates from the KRCL team throughout the fest. Individual tickets and passes on sale today, January 12th at 10 a.m. Welcome back to Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. Coming up at 7 o'clock, it's Democracy Now! And then you get your Thursday night psych out with DJ Mike at 8. Gianni starts walking the Dirty Boulevard at 10.30. Rich, I Don't Sound Like Nobody starts at 1. Illustrated Blues with Jolene at 3 a.m. And every weekday morning at 6 a.m., it's John Florence greeting you with a brand new day. You can check out the last two weeks of all those shows and this one on our website, krcl.org. Click on Programs, and you will find a Listen On Demand option. We're going to close the show with a conversation about Downwind, a must-see documentary at Slamdance this month. Of course, Slamdance originally started as the Sundance Alternative years ago. They've got a full slate of films. Check tonight's show notes for a link as well as tickets to see a screening of Downwind on January 23rd at Treasure Mountain Inn in Park City. Earlier that day, I'll be hosting a panel with the filmmakers and some of the folks in the film, so stay tuned for details on that. But let's dig into this documentary. Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Mercury, Nevada. The latter was the site for the testing of 928 nuclear weapons on American soil, from 1951 to 1992, and the fallout still lethally impacting Americans today. Martin Sheen narrates this harrowing expose of the United States' disregard for everyone living, according to the film Downwind. To find out more, let's pass that microphone. I'm Mark Shapiro. First of all, thrilled to be here. Thank you, Laura. Um, I'm co-director of Downwind, and we're we're really excited to showcase this film. I feel like it's a really important film and I'm really excited that, that others will be able to voice their concerns about what happened um, and, um, you know, just be, be a part of this and, and learn more about what happened um, after the 928 detonations on American soil. And Mary Dixon, our listeners are familiar with you, but please, how would you like to be introduced? 
Sure. I'm Mary Dixon. I am a longtime activist and advocate for downwinders, a downwinder myself, and I've been working the last few years to help um, with a bill that expands and extends the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, and I uh, was gratefully interviewed in Mark's film, Downwind. Let's start with the very start of the film, Mark, and it is that data, that terrifying data, that between 1951 and 1992 on American soil in Nevada, 928 nuclear tests conducted above ground. That right there is heart-stopping. Yeah, it, it, it really is. And um, to clarify, there were 100 that were done above ground, um, those detonations that were that were atmospheric, they call, and um, 828 shots, as they call them, were conducted underground. But it's important to note that every one of those underground tests also vent into the atmosphere. So in both cases, you know, the mushroom clouds were, were people are more familiar with um, those detonations, which are, um, as you mentioned, um, you know, it's something that that it's hard for any of us to sort of figure out, okay, what goes up comes down. And um, the magnitude of, the, of that number is, is is remarkable. Thanks for that clarification. That's part of what you're trying to do with this film is to set the record straight, Mark. I think I think the record should be set straight because I think for a lot of people, this is um, they 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 weren't aware of it. I think everyone is aware of Trinity, Alamogordo, New Mexico. Um, the, the tests that took place then, the Manhattan Project. But the fact that we had these 928 detonations, and there probably were more, Mary might be able to clarify that, but um, the fact that that, that number, um, and I actually have this uh, 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 this booklet that I referred to from the Department of Energy called United States Nuclear Test that, that, that describes each one of the detonations from 1951 to 1992, um, the fact that, that that number is 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 sort of astounding um everyone that we talked to throughout the making of this film that was not connected to this topic was surprised and and taken aback and and wanted wanted to know why so it was part of the reason why he wanted to make this film you also got martin sheen as the narrator of this documentary which lends a certain gravitas not aside from his depiction as a president, a fake president of the United States, but because of his activism and outspokenness on so many causes, was that an important part of making this film? It really was. Um, Martin Sheen, obviously we revered, we we love Martin Sheen. I've loved him from day one. Um, I grew up in a, in a progressive household and he was someone that we, that we looked up to because of the fact that he um, held our government accountable for, for what it did, although he was you know, he recognized, you know, he, he obviously loves being an American. It doesn't mean that he can't um, call to task this nation for atrocities, really. Um, and so he was important, but he was not just as someone who's an outspoken activist against nuclear um, nuclear weapons, um, but also the fact that he, he, um, he was at the test site itself, hand in hand, arm in arm with people like Ian Zabarte and others, Corbin Harney, um, who, you know, parts of individuals from the Shoshone Nation who were, you know, in support of of stopping these tests. And, and you know, he was arrested so many times. And I brought that up to him in our, in, in our voice record. And he did, doesn't want to be known as the most arrested star in Hollywood. He he wants to be known as somebody who who speaks his mind when, it, when, when you have to speak your mind. And that's been so crucial to 
raising awareness, Mary, especially when it comes to compensation for folks, survivors, um, and families who have lost folks. Can you briefly summarize this uh, Compensation Act that you're working so hard on uh, reauthorizing and making aware that people can apply to? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'll try to do the very short version. Um, The act was passed in 1990. Uh, It provides compensation, very limited. Um, It's like 50,000 for downwinders, which is nothing. It doesn't cover chemo. But it only compensated people in 22 largely rural counties of Utah, Nevada, and Arizona. And so we've been working for decades to get that expanded. I mean, we know very well from studies done since 1990 that that fallout went across the country. It didn't stop at any county or state borders. I mean, there wasn't a lead shield that stopped it anywhere. So it went everywhere. The West was particularly hard hit, which is why these bills would add um, seven states totally, including Utah, and then also Guam, and increase the amount of compensation. So we've been working very hard. Uh, We made a lot of progress. We got 77 co-sponsors in the House, 24 in the Senate. It's bipartisan, which is pretty remarkable for Bill. Um, Unfortunately, with a new Congress in place, we have to start all over. And speaking of starting all over, I feel like there's a new arms race brewing, given Russia's war in Ukraine and its conversation or just signaling of weaponry and um, what's been said in our own country by our leaders about where are we on our supersonics and do we have enough nukes to compete? So, uh, Mary, Mark, what are your thoughts about this movie against that very current event? Um, I'll I'll jump in really fast. I do think that if people knew what those weapons had done, the absolutely catastrophic effects they've had on countless Americans across this country, they wouldn't be so eager to go with nuclear again. Um, You know, the new defense budget that just was passed, uh, $857 huge amount, and it does include some new nuclear warhead cruise missiles. So, Uh, Yeah, we are jumping back in. And I think that's incredibly worrisome, incredibly worrisome. Mark? I think so, too. I also think that there was this media machine that got in our minds that nuclear power was safe, that it wasn't dangerous. And I think that what we're trying to do here is raise the levels of consciousness about how, you know, we need need to understand what goes up, comes down, and and the price of being a a superpower and, and the price of of life, you know, the the detonations took place in one area. As we're talking about um, Nevada and the impact that it had, not just on, you know, Nevada and those counties that Mary mentioned, but in those states, but everywhere. It went all over the world and continues to. And we, we also find out that through nuclear, even nuclear um, accidents at nuclear power plants, the, the radiation circulates globally. So I think the media plays a part in this um, in, in, in a way that, that can really, as to Mary's point, um, brings to a level of consciousness what actually what happens. Well, and you really bring that to the fore in your conversation with Ian Zabarte, principal man of the Western Bands of the Shoshone Nation of Indians. Let's share a clip here uh, about the devastation in his own family. My name is Ian Zabarte. I'm principal man of the Western Bands of the Shoshone Nation of Indians. I'm also secretary of the Native Community Action Council, party withstanding in the Atomic Safety Licensing Board of the proposed Yucca Mountain High Level Nuclear Waste Repository, docket 63-001. 
My family personally, um, my grandfather, my uncle, uh, other first cousins have died of cancer and today are still dying of various forms of cancer and, and other illnesses known to be plausible from exposure to radiation. My grandfather, uh, he had an immune deficiency and his skin became hard and fell off. That is a type of illness that is potentially related to exposure to radiation. And ultimately he died from a heart attack a month after his skin fell off, but that produced stress on his body, which I believe uh, led to his heart attack. A lot of our activities were outside. And uh, my uncles and aunts and uh, other family members played in the fallout. I was lucky, lucky enough not to be exposed as far as I am aware. That's Ian Zabarte, principal man of the Western Bands of the Shoshone Nation of Indians, in the documentary Downwind that screens at Slam Dance on January 23rd, 5.30 in the evening at Treasure Mountain Inn. Uh, stay tuned or check the show notes for a link to get your tickets. But also earlier that day at 11.15 on Monday, January 23rd, in the Crescent Room of Treasure Mountain Inn, I'll join with Mary and Mark, Claudia Peterson, Ian Zabarte, Scott Williams of Heal Utah, also Mark's co-director of Downwind, Douglas Brian Miller, for a conversation about the movie and the so timely information. 40 years, Mary, and still yeah. this is with us and still timely because I don't think we've learned our lesson, Mary. Not only have we not learned our lesson, but it's still incredibly relevant because people are still getting sick. A lot of those cancers take decades to show up. People's cancers are returning. They're getting health complications. They're still struggling with outrageous medical bills that they've accumulated. A lot of them have lost their livelihoods. Um, but but worst of all, um, a lot of us have lost a lot of loved ones. A yeah. lot. And you can drive home that point when there's an important celebrity in the mix, Mark, and that's John Wayne. Yeah, so we talked about John Wayne and initially the the film The Conqueror, which was a very, very interesting film that came out, a Howard Hughes produced film. Um, it was made in St. George, Utah, 135 miles from the Nevada test site. Um, in the film, um, we, we learned later that uh, more than half the cast uh, – suffered from cancer or some some sort of cancer that that impacted not just the production but their lives as mary said not just the main stars um but also um the the director of the film and a lot of the the shivwit nation uh, the band of paiute indians that were that were that were um in the film who were paid you know almost nothing to to ride on their horses and things like that They're, we don't have a lot of information about how many people were impacted there but this film, The Conqueror, not only did it sort of, um, it, it 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 was sort of seen as not the greatest film of all. It's sort of there was some cultural appropriation going on with John Wayne playing Genghis Khan. But it sort of became, we we thought of John Wayne as sort of a, an icon. Um, he was impacted obviously by by cancer, but he's one person. But he's sort of re representative representative of that sort of brash, bold, brazen American icon, and that's why we thought it was important to include this in the film, um, not because he is John Wayne, like I mentioned, but because he sort of represents America. And um, it's, you know, we, we spoke to his son, um, Patrick Wayne, and Patrick, Patrick gave some 
pretty interesting insight about what was going on at the production. And then later, they didn't know the testing was going on, but later the impact of the testing, including the fact that uh, apparently Howard Hughes had a bunch of the red dirt from St. George brought back to Hollywood for um, post-production and pickups, which Patrick Wayne returned later with Geiger counters, and it was still radioactive. This is about 15 to 20 years ago. So it, he talks about how it really gave an indication of what the people were going through at the time, what they were eating, what was getting into the soil, and you know the just the the remarkable, uh, you know the the everything that sort of was connected together on on that set. There is always interest in uranium, but it seems even more so these days. And despite a moratorium on testing, the Nevada test site remains operational. You say with the possibility of resumed testing. So all in all, Mark, Mary, what do you want this movie to do in our public discourse about nuclear power, nuclear weapons, and and testing? Mark? Again, I want it to raise consciousness about what's going on and what's happening. To Mary's point, people are still getting sick. It's still happening. Um, we need to come to an understanding of what, what is safe, what isn't safe. Um, what goes up comes down. There is a, um, you know, the consequence to testing. And we're hoping to get the word out. You know, we don't want to be reactive to something that's happening. We're hoping that this raises the level of conversation and gets people to talk about it. It's our goal when we made this film, when Doug and I made this film, was to let people know about what's what's happening. And then also to take a step back, let people like Mary, like Claudia, like Ian, like Darlene, the people in our film, the individuals in our film, to have a voice to talk about the impact and um, as Dr. Mensch, who is a, a Salt Lake City doctor, mentions, you know, it's just it's it's something that um, to bring up the fact that we potentially could retest or start testing again is something that should disqualify somebody from public office. Dr. Brian Mensch, Utah Physicians for a Healthy Environment, right? Correct. Yes. And Mary, we're going to give you the last word. You uh, sure. have had, have dealt with I, this as a downwinder, your family, yourself, and yet you still keep fighting. I do. I can't give up. I think it's just too important. I, I'm, and I agree with everything Mark said. I think what I want people to see is the huge human toll of testing that our own government actually sacrificed us in the name of national security. We were deemed expendable. And knowing what we know, and believe me, they know, um, it's absolutely immoral to even consider resuming nuclear testing. Absolutely immoral. What's the name of the act again that you're pushing for reauthorization on, Mary? Um, it's the expansion of the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act. And there's a great website, expandreca.org. And Mark, folks can get tickets through slamdance.org, but also the website for the film, which is? Which is backlotdocs.com. I'm going to go out with another clip from the movie Downwind. This is Claudia Peterson talking about why, why the Nevada test site was chosen. Thanks, Mark and Mary. Thank you, Laura. I really appreciate it. Thank you. When the declassified information came out, when they were finding an area, they chose the test site because they felt like they already owned the land. They didn't. It was Shoshone land. They weren't going to have to pay for it. They were told to do it back east would be better because it would go over the ocean and wouldn't contaminate the people downwind. But they decided it was cheaper to be in Nevada and 
it was a low-use segment of the population they would be exposing downwind. That's Claudia Peterson of St. George, Utah, one of the folks sharing their story about being a downwinder in the new slam dance documentary, Downwind. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the screening that's happening January 23rd, 5.30 in the evening at the Treasure Mountain Inn in Park City. Earlier that day, I'll be moderating a panel discussion with Mark and Mary and some other folks in the film. It starts at 11.15 a.m. on Monday, January 23rd, again at Treasure Mountain Inn. Check tonight's show notes for links to all of that. I'm Laura Jones. Thanks for listening. Thanks for plugging into your community. Weeknights at 6 during Radioactive, only on KRCL. Have a great night.